James Senegal once said, technology helps us become more efficient and productive, but our business still has a lot of art as opposed to strictly science. Are you tinkering, self-learning, self-improving, experimenting with home labbing? And do you want to become a skilled IT expert? Well, you've found your new home. This is the Home Labbers Podcast. On this show, we'll interview top experts and dig deep to learn how they got started and how they train their IT skills as a master martial artist in a Shaolin temple. And you know what? We're going to have fun along the way. This is the Home Labbers Podcast. And now your host, Vian Du. All right, let's do this. Webster, welcome to the podcast. So excited to have you on the podcast. Ah, oh, well, thank you for having me. I'm honored that uh, you want to find out about my lab. It's kind of grown over the years. Your lab is so amazing. You are well known for your home lab manuals, Webster Lab version one and two. So one of the best. I use them very often. Well, thank you. Well, so what, one thing you have to understand is my target audience for my website and for my articles even the however, however many, what was it, like 27 parts to my uh, Building Webster's Lab V2 article series is beginners. Because the one thing experienced people forget is that every day there's someone brand new to our world of IT. No one comes out of the womb understanding everything there is about technology and networking and processing and storage and TCP IP and, you know, all this stuff. And, you know, most people just assume that when they discuss stuff that people understand what they're talking about. And so one of my friends, Michael B. Smith, who's a, a longtime uh, former exchange MVP, when I first started my website, uh, let's see, November 2008, so that's been what, just over 13 years now? My web, my, my CarlWebster.com has been up. And when I first started writing and having him review stuff, man, that stuff came back with red all over it. And one phrase he used has stuck with me since November 2008. You are assuming knowledge the reader may not have. So I never try to assume that anyone knows what vCenter is or vSphere is or a bare metal host or NFS or any of the other technologies that we have just second nature to us. There are people who don't understand what that is. And so if you've ever read any of my articles on my website, you know, I go into extreme detail 
explaining stuff because always in the back of my mind is always don't assume the reader understands what you are writing about. There's always that brand new person who wants to know how do I install something? How do I configure something? How do I work with something? But not only the how, but why? Why do I do this checkbox and not this checkbox? Why do I click this radio button and not this radio button? Why do I use NVS or sorry, NFS V3 and not NFS V4? You know, these people have no idea what we may be talking about. And so I try to explain in as simple terms as I can what I've got in my lab and how I built it. And everyone always comes back and says, well, why don't you have everything automated? Well, for the most part, I do, but a beginner doesn't understand automation. A beginner doesn't have, you know, a, a, a Linux server built to handle, you know, Packer and Ansible and Chef and Puppet and Chocolate Tea. And they won't even know what we're talking about. They think we're at a candy store. You know, when we start talking about our toy store, when we start talking about puppet and chef and chocolatey, you know, and stuff like that. And so it's hard to automate something you don't understand. You have to understand something or at least have done it once and then realize that, man, I'm really lazy. I really don't ever want to do this manually again. And then you learn to automate. And so that's where I come from in all my articles and stuff, which, you know, some people say you do everything manually. Yes, I do. To write about, but all the stuff in my lab, man, I rebuild my lab so often. I ain't no way I'm going to do it manually every time. <laughs> but when I'm... You have a lot of scripts as well. Yeah, you know, but, but you know, so um, when... VSphere 8 and vCenter 8, you know, uh, come out. And I will start the entire process all, all over again. I will build that manually the first time, or actually probably three times as I, because my writing process is I do something and then I'm taking notes. And then once I have everything working, I destroy everything. And then I follow my notes and rebuild everything. Did I overlook something? Did I miss a step along the way? Did I just inadvertently just click next, 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 finished on something without explaining why I went next, 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 finished? And then once I have gone through and validated all my notes and the build process, then I destroy everything again. And then I build everything all over and I write the articles. You're saying your lab guide is for beginners. I do not consider myself a beginner, but I'm still using it each time I start rebuilding my home lab. Your lab guide is so detailed and so easy to use. Well, I'm fixing to do an update to the guide because 
in late November through December, the part of the United States I live in, South Central USA, we had a lot of bad weather. We had ice storms, and we had extreme winds, and we had snow, and we had a lot of trees fall on power lines from the ice and everything. And we had so many power issues that it blew one of my UPSs. Well, on that UPS was my main PC, my three 27-inch monitors. I wound up losing my main PC. I wound up losing two of my 27-inch monitors. You know, I wound up uh, losing several of my SSD drives. And so I had, and a lot of that stuff had just gone out of warranty. And so there was no warranty on the stuff. And so I wound up having to buy a new uh, desktop, a couple of new monitors, 27-inch uh, monitors. Had to buy a new uh, MacBook Pro. Uh, you know, got one of the new uh, M1 MacBook Pros. Um, and so uh, there's been a lot of changes in the lab. And so as soon as I find the time, I'm going to start on version 2.1 of the lab guide, which is basically, Hey, here's everything that's changed since I created V2 last summer. You know, there's a, uh, a new, uh, desktop. There's new monitors. Also, sister, I'm sorry. VMware finally has, you know, 703 stable enough to actually use. And because I lost several of the SSD drives in uh, my Synology NASes, I wound up, you know, just basically wiping everything out and just rebuilding everything. But with 703C and Upgrading the Synology to the what DSM seven, which had a nasty side effect that they dropped support for NFS four point one. They now only support NFS four. So all my data stores, I had to rebuild them because everything was NFS four point one, and I couldn't connect to anything. So that was one of the reasons I decided just to go through and rebuild. Everything. So I mean, I got everything backed up. I've got I got backups on external hard drives and thumb drives and backed up onto my NAS and my NASs are backed up to external drives and I back everything up or copy everything up to ShareFile and Dropbox uh, and then I also use Carbonite. Plus, I back up. Uh, all my website stuff and all my documents and, and stuff like that is also backed up onto my Dell laptop. So I have got redundant, redundant, redundant copies of everything because I'm so paranoid about losing something. And so when all this weather stuff and the power stuff happened, it was just a good time, mainly because I had to. I lost two monitors. I lost my main computer. You know, I lost a couple of SSD drives. It was just time, okay, time to refresh some stuff. But the basics of the lab are still the same. It's still, you know, vSphere or ESXi 
you know, seven, only this time it's 703C. And, uh, you know, the, the Citrix stuff, uh, Zen server, um, is now upgraded to 8.2CU1. Uh, um, I'm now in the process of upgrading all my servers from 2019 to 2022. So I just this morning did an outline for an article. So this is something I have done for many customers over the years where you've got uh, domain controllers and you want to upgrade the domain controllers, but I don't like doing in-place OS upgrades because if something goes wrong, you really don't have a rollback plan, especially when they're domain controllers because Microsoft doesn't want you using snapshots for domain controllers and reverting to a snapshot can cause all kinds of issues. And so what most customers do, I, well, I, I won't say most, I would say uh, a vast number of customers, what they want to do is they want to put in new domain controllers, but use the exact same name and IP address as the original domain controllers. And so I have done that so many times, and now need to do it in my lab. And so I went through and did a two-page, okay, here are all the things you have to do if you want to reuse the name and IP address of the domain controller to replace it with a later operating system. You know, and so I'm going to write about that also. That that would be a, 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 as you would expect, it's going to be a very detailed article on how to do that. And I expect it to be popular because so many people want to know how to do that. And it's not as easy as some consultants make it out to be because if there are some things you don't do behind the scenes after you've done the name and IP switch, then all of a sudden things start happening odd in your active directory. And so I will explain all of that. Uh, so all that will go into the, uh, that'd be a separate article, but it will be, part of the building Webster's lab V, I guess, 2.1. You know, <laughs> I, it, that won't be 27 parts. That'd probably just be, you know, just one article that says, Hey, here are all the things that have changed in the lab. Webster, we already dive into home lab topic, but uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Let's go a little bit back. Okay. Well, I've been in it for 45 years which is probably longer than you've been alive. So <laughs> I got my start in mainframes, <clears throat> then moved to PCs in 1986. Oh, I got, got started in, in 77 in mainframes and moved to PCs in 86. Um, and then um, started working with um, networking and, you know, things like peer-to-peer -peer networking and, you know, just general networking and stuff. And like the 88, 89, 90 time frame was when all that started. When I started working with that, uh, when I started working with the very first Citrix product, Citrix multi-user, which was a multi-user version of OS2. 
before there was NT4 and before there was a terminal server edition, you know, the big thing back then was peer-to-peer networking. You know, then you got into the the big networks like the Netware, the Banyan Vines and stuff like that. And then, you know, then later on, uh, VMware uh, came on the scene. So that's how I got into all this stuff, just playing around with it all and, uh, you know, just slowly starting out with one computer in my lab in the uh, late 80s and building to this uh, monster lab that I have now. But where did you get the idea to actually start building your home home lab at home? Well, I was um, learning to do Active Directory and learning to do Exchange. And so, so other than just having a, a computer, you know, just a personal computer, you know, I needed something that I could, you know, learn this newfangled Active Directory stuff, you know, in 98, 99, 2000. And then a company I went to work for in 2003 asked if I would also learn Exchange. And I said, yeah, sure, I'll do that. Well, you know, you needed another server for that. And so the, the idea for the lab came just because I needed to learn how to do things, and I needed um, a way to have multiple domain controllers in an exchange server, you know, so you got to virtualize this stuff or figure out some way to have multiple servers. Um, and then sometimes I, I would be asked to, hey, we need to do a migration project, and here's what the customer has, and this is what they're going to. And so I would actually build that in my lab. I would build as best I could what the customer had and then figure out how to get to where the customer wanted. So like the very first exchange install I did, I did it 21 times over one weekend because my boss told me on a Friday afternoon that I was going to be doing an exchange install on Monday afternoon. And so I had to go through and figure out, you know, all the stuff to, you know, to get uh, this brand new exchange 2000 installed. And so the lab was a way for me to figure out how to do it and learn that, Oh, I got to have an MX record. Oh, well, how do you do public DNS? And, how do you get mail traffic, you know, flowing and stuff? It was a great learning experience. And what, um, one of the, or actually the, the DNS provider that my employer back in 2003, four, five, a couple of years um, used actually was a tier one DNS provider. And so he actually taught me. When we went to him and said, all right, we've got this company that we're putting in an exchange system for, I had to build the zone file from scratch. And so I had to have all the records and everything in the zone file, and then I would send it to him. And then he would just send it back to me saying, nope, this is not correct. He wouldn't tell me what was wrong. And then I had to go back through and figure out 
you know, all the DNS entries that go into his own file. Uh, so that was also a great learning, uh, sometimes a frustrating learning experience when you're told that something is wrong, but they won't tell you what's wrong and you got to go in there and figure it out. <laughs> Makes for great troubleshooting, but it can be a frustrating uh, experience. Um, and so that's how the initial lab stuff started. Um, even, so I started initially 98, 99, you know, with the, the learning, the new, um, active directory stuff. And then in 2003, four, five, six, seven evolved to doing, uh, more active directory projects, how to do, uh, AD migrations, how to do exchange installs, how to do exchange migrations, you know, how to implement the uh, terminal services and then later, you know, remote desktop services. And that's what, how the lab uh, grew just, but it was not, Hey, just going plunk, you know, 10 or 20 or $30,000 down on lab equipment. No, this was really low end stuff, you know, that you would go and find some place where you could buy junk motherboards and a low end processor and some Ram and stuff, or you may have a, a customer that's getting rid of old slow like HP and Dell servers, the original G2 and G3 HP pizza boxes. <laughs> it seems funny now, you know, it's just like, wow, I could run two one core processors and I could actually have 64 meg of RAM and a 4.5 gigabyte hard drive. Whoa! <laughs> what am I going to do with all that, all those resources? <laughs> and now you couldn't do squat with 64 mega RAM and a 4.5 gig hard drive. <laughs> but how did your first home lab look like? Like, what was your servers and gears and so on? They were just the cheapest thing I could find like on new egg because I was learning to build servers. And so it's just whatever I could find as cheap as I could find it on new egg or eBay. And so, the, you know, they didn't cost much money. There was also in little rock, Arkansas, uh, because the company I worked for was in little rock. Um, I'll give a shout out to allied technology group. Um, giving me my, my big start in Active Directory and Exchange. Um, I don't think the company is around anymore, but it was a um, uh, a computer shop where you could just go in and they had all these different motherboards and processors and memory and stuff, you know, and, and you could buy like a motherboard uh, that they had replaced or upgraded someone, they had old motherboard. So you go buy a motherboard for 30 bucks, buy you an old processor, you know, for 25 bucks, you know, and get you 16 or 32 meg of RAM, you know, for 10 bucks or, you know, something like that. And then just, and just build in those old big old boxes. And, and that was great for learning how to actually assemble the stuff. Um, because that became good experience because back then when you would order an HP server, 
you may get 50 boxes. <laughs> and, then, and then, you know, you had to assemble, you had to take the motherboard out of the box, you know, and put, and put it in the case. Then you had to take each processor and put it in to get the RAM and then all the cables and connect everything and put all the cards in and everything. Cause nothing from HP back then came pre-assembled. And so, you know, building your own gave me good experience, you know, for building all those, uh, HP servers that came in, you know, 50 or 80 boxes and you had to put all that stuff together. But how did you fund your home lab? I guess you could say just spare money. Um, I would actually build computers for people and then take whatever profit I had and then roll it into building the next computer uh, for the lab. Um, because by that time, so now we're getting into, um, you know, the, uh, mid to late, uh, two thousands and, you know, computer parts were getting more expensive because I was needing heavier duty stuff. And so I would just build stuff. Um, so the, the, the first huge computer I built and I was trying to find a picture of it for you and I can't find it. There's an, it may still be in existence. There's an old website called two CPU.com. The number two CPU.com. At one time I was one of the more active members in their uh, forums. And that was back in the days when there were no multi-core CPUs. So if you wanted to have two CPUs, you had to buy a motherboard that had two sockets or four sockets or six sockets on it. You know, uh, I don't know if you remember the old, like 15 U uh, compact and HP servers, you know, because that's what you had to have to have a four CPU or a six CPU system. And those things cost tens of thousands of dollars back then. And they were, they were heavy, massive servers. Um, but the first one I built was a two CPU box and I loaded it up with 256 megabyte of Ram. And I had four, 4.5 gig SCSI drives. I had a SCSI CD-ROM drive. I had a SCSI um, iOmega zip drive and a SCSI Jazz with one Z drive. And, I mean, that tower had to stand at least four foot tall. And it had wheels because it was so heavy, you, you, you couldn't lift it once everything was installed. So it actually came with, with wheels. It was a monster. Um, the stuff came, I don't even know if they're around anymore, from a company called PC Power and Cooling. Yeah, I think, I think the website was PCPowerandCooling.com. But they made you know the, uh, the, uh, the monster power supplies that you needed back then. You know, the 400, the 500, the 750, the 1,000, the 1,200 volt amp power supplies that you needed to drive those monster personal computers back then, 
you know, and of course now, uh, this thing that's sitting on my desk that doesn't weigh much more than a book, you know, and it's a core I seven, I think with, uh, uh, 12 cores, you know, and with hyperthreading, you know, I've got like 24 things when I look in task manager, you know, performance, you know, I mean, heck this thing back then would have probably have cost $50,000 back in the year, 2000, 2001, 2002, <laughs> when I built that big old monster two CPU. And I think the, I think those CPUs ran at a blistering 200 megahertz. And I think, what did I spend on that sucker? That was the most expensive personal computer I ever built. And I believe I spent five or $6,000 on it, you know, for two 200 megahertz. CPUs, 256 mega RAM, and what would that be? Uh, 18 gigabyte of storage, a CD drive, a video card, and a, and a monster. I don't remember the brand. It may have been a Sony. 21-inch monitor. The monitor weighs 75 pounds. Monster, I mean... Once you put that system in place, you never wanted to move it because you'd get a hernia just trying to pick up that 21-inch monitor to adjust it on your desk. And, of course, once you got that uh, big old four-foot computer case, you know, in place, you locked all four wheels, you know, and then once you got all your cables run from everything, you never wanted to move any of that stuff. And of course, now, uh, hold on one second. I'm going to open this door here. <laughs> hold on. Okay. <laughs> wow. Actually, that's my next question. Actually. So that's the server room now. You can see the six servers over here are the VMware servers. Then just to the left of those are the four Citrix Zen servers. Uh, so the six are Xeon 8-core, and then the four are Xeon 12-core. And then, I don't know if I can hold on a set. I don't, Forgive me, I'm going to move this camera if I can. Let's see if I, I don't know how far this thing will, will stretch here. Hold on. I have no idea how, how much of a zoom we can get in there. Yeah, yeah, not much. But you can see I had to put a mini split AC unit in there. That's that thing up on the wall to keep the room cool. And let's see, can we get anywhere? Yeah, you can see a little bit more in there oh man yeah it, there's a yeah it's a lot of stuff in there and it generates a lot of heat 
Now let's see if I get my camera back up. Now that thing generates so much noise that I can't keep the door open. And plus that mini split, when it kicks on, I mean, it just blows. It, it, that, that's why I actually keep a jacket here for the times I have to actually do work in there because it is so cold. Even though it's only 72, that mini split blows so much air. And then the other unit I've got, I've, there's three vents in here, and they can get so cold in here. And I keep the thermostat at 78, and I have to wear heavy-duty stuff in here and keep a, a, a coat in here because it can get so cold in here, it almost feels like I'm in a data center. Well, so hold on a second. Let me go close that door because it is loud in here now. <laughs> oh, I think hopefully this mic uh, filters out all that loud noise in the back. Yeah, it's filtering. I can't hear noise. Ah, good, because <laughs> it, it's loud. <laughs> <laughs> what software are you running there besides Citrix and Vemara? Uh, um, that, that's, that's it. I run Citrix Zen server 8.2 CU1 on the four 12 core servers. And that's what I run my infrastructure on. So that's where my domain controller file server certificate, you know, server, uh, SQL server, my management PC where I do all my scripting and, and article writing and stuff, uh, or not, not article writing, but, uh, testing and stuff. Um, all runs on the Zen server stuff because it's quote unquote permanent, even though in a lab, really nothing is permanent as often as I rebuild my lab. Um, but, uh, they all run all the VMs run off of local NVMe storage because nothing is ever moved around. I, you know, there's no, motioning of any VM between servers or anything because Citrix really doesn't have anything that compares with DRS. And so, you know, you just, I just have everything allocated a fixed amount of memory, a fixed amount of storage space, and that's where they go. Everything else, um, e even uh, Citrix servers, my Horizon stuff, my parallel stuff, everything runs on the VMware servers. And I have a DRS set for fully automated. Um, the one thing I had to do, even though I don't have that many VMs, I had to scale up my vCenter. When you install it, I chose that, I think it's tiny option. But I actually had to go in there, and uh, I think it—I think it starts off with like um, two vCPU and eight gig of RAM or something like that. Totally useless, even in my small lab. I had to go up to four vCPU and sixteen gig of RAM for my vCenter, so that I would stop getting all the warnings and errors in vCenter that I was exhausting memory and exhausting uh, CPU on the vCenter. And so basically vCenter, even though it does get motioned around, it basically takes half of one of those hosts because it's a, it's a eight core host and it's given four 
And each of those hosts has 32 gig of memory, and that vCenter has 16 gig. So that vCenter is using half of a host. And the only reason it is not running on local NVMe storage is because, well, when you do, you know, the the automated updates, well, vCenter needs to be able to move from host to host, you know, so that a host can be uh, put in maintenance mode and restarted. Uh, so I have to leave vCenter on the shared storage. And, man, you can really tell when that vCenter gets moved uh, from host to host because you can really tell that some of the VMs become not as responsive when vCenter is being moved. But uh, so, so that's the main. Uh, so vSphere 7.03C and then Zen Server 8.2CU1. That's the two main stuff. Almost every server is 2019. The new servers that are being built, like for uh, you know the new connection server, the new stuff for Citrix, all of that is server 2022. I, all my infrastructure was built on 2019. So now I want to go through and write some article series on how do you move domain controllers you know, from one operating system to a, you know, you know, from one host or one VM to another VM while using the same name and IP address and the same thing, you know, with the file server, how do you move shares around and the same thing with the SQL server? How do you bring up a new SQL server and move those databases over? Uh, let's see. I've got a 48 port, a one gig switch. And that's basically where the IPMI, all those hosts are from uh, Supermicro, and they all have an IPMI connection. And so they're, they're all just one gig. And so those go into the one gig. The Zen server management goes into the one gig. Um, everything else is 10 gig. So even my desktop has a 10 gig. Nick in it. Um, the two NASs have 10 gig NICs in them. All 10 of the host in that room all have dual 10 gig NICs. So everything other than the two external drives that are attached to the Synology NASs, those are the only spinning disks. In this lab, everything else is SSD or NVMe. And then getting back to building the lab, this lab, you know, originally started when I moved here in 2008 um, and started my website. I had two servers in the lab, both of them running AMD Opteron processors. And they were, you know, in the big, tall, cases and everything because uh, that was, I had to have the big motherboard so I could have two Opterons, you know, and stuff like that. Um, and then I started getting advertisers for my website and I would take their money and put it 100% into building the lab. 
And then when I started doing all the documentation scripts, and I uh, see that was 2011, then in 2013, I had some people ask me to put a donation button on my website so that people could donate uh, to the scripts. And I would take 100% of that money and put it into the lab. And so the lab has gone from basically those, those two headless servers to now I've got, you know, the 10 servers that are in there, the two Synology NASAs and 1817 and 1817 plus I've got uh, a nice uh, Linksys router here that works with my uh, uh, local ISPs, uh, gig fiber gig internet connection. Uh, I've got a, see the net gear 10 gig is a XS 748 T pro. And the one gig is a net gear GC 752 X. And those two switches are actually connected. Uh, both of them have a 10 gig, uh, was it SPF plus connectors. And so that's how the two switches are interconnected is via uh, 10 gig SPF fiber connections. And so things move pretty, pretty fast in the lab now. Uh, back when I had the original Synology NASAs, which I think were 1500 series that had all spinning disc, I was lucky and only one gig. I was lucky if I could get four VMs running at one time. And now with everything on SSD, NVMe, and 10 gig, I've been able to get over uh, 30 VMs running at one time. The only bottleneck now is if I get too many VMs running on that six-node uh, vSphere cluster, DRS goes starts going nuts. And so then I know it's time to, you know, to shut down a VM or two, you know, so that uh, DRS doesn't drive itself crazy because then all I see in vCenter is, you know, this VM is being moved. <laughs> and so over the years has gone from just those two to where now I have those, uh, the 10 servers plus this desktop plus a Dell laptop um, plus, uh, a computer I, uh, salvaged when my wife's hard drive died in it. And it is a slow computer. Um, and I just upgraded it to 16 gig of Ram. I use it. I call it my extra PC. I use it, uh, like for Citrix call servers, remote PC to give you access to a physical device. And the same thing. So in Horizon, I also use it as the show that you can use Horizon, you know, to connect to a physical PC. And I also use it with Parallels RAS to show that even with Parallels, you can still connect to a physical PC. I've got uh, an Intel MacBook Pro, an M1 MacBook Pro. And then what you're seeing back over here is my iGel or Eagle, as it's pronounced in German, 
my iGel lab, iGel sent me a UD7 and a UD3. And then in the middle, I've got an old laptop that uh, when I used to uh, go to conferences and events and speak a lot between uh, 2012 and 2017, that HP laptop had like uh, 8 gig of RAM. It only had like a 256 gig SSD, but the only thing on it is Windows 10 and PowerPoint. And fully charged, I can run that thing without power for seven hours on a full charge. So I could take that to a conference or an event like Bryform or E2E VC or Synergy or VMworld and have everything ready to go in the morning, unplug it from power, and know that I was going to be able to go the entire day without having to worry about needing to charge it. Because there's only basically one piece of software running on it, PowerPoint. And when I'm done, you know, I shut it down and power it up. The next time I need it, then off I go. And so that's what, uh, if you count the, the UDs, that's what, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and then the 10 servers, that's 17 computers now in the lab how much they are all taking power have you already measured yeah it's actually not that much the new um super micro servers with the xeons uh and don't let's see can i find out uh hold on a sec here because when i put in the mini split the HVAC company actually came out here and we, uh, they actually had me research. I had to pull up all of the power for all the servers and everything in here. Um, if you were to run the thing at full max, yeah, you, you need a lot of cooling, but these things don't run, you know, 100% CPU all the time. Uh, hold on a sec here. Um, I was trying to see if I could remember what the Intel CPU was in those hosts. I, I know I've got it on my website. Nah, I don't know what the CPU host is. Um, what the Xeon uh, processor is. Oh, it's a Xeon D. 1541, 2.1 gigahertz. Oh, it's low power, actually. Yes. Yeah. And so, even with all 10 servers going, the two NASs, the two switches, and the six UPSs that are in there. And what, unfortunately, what I can't show you is one of them is, is, a, is a monster APC backups, 2200 volt amp. Well, well one of the things you would you'd literally see in a data center. It's in there. And then the other five UPSs that are in there are plugged into it. And even with all of that equipment in there running 24 seven, 
it's, I think, because uh, everything in here stays on 24-7. It added $20 a month to my electric bill. What is a UPS runtime? Oh, oh, whoa, whoa. Okay, so, um, well, actually, I know because we had all those power outages back in late November, early December. And that's when I found out that I had overloaded the UPS that my main PC and the three monitors were plugged into. I had overloaded that UPS. And, and even though I've got the, uh, the APC, uh, whatever that software is called, that monitors power, uh, power, Smart power, power shoot, whatever, whatever that the 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 personal software is called. Um, the battery drains so fast that software didn't have time to react and shut down everything gracefully. So it just went down, and then power came back up, and then went down. It was just an up down, up down, up down, up down like that, and it and it literally fried the UPS fried the computer, ruined two of the monitors, you know, because it's just, so I now have two UPSs for the main computer and the three monitors. So the computer and a couple of minor accessories that are rarely ever turned on um, are plugged into one UPS and the three monitors are plugged into a separate UPS. And so I should be able to get at least 30 to 45 minutes off of this or these two UPSs. The ones in the server room actually lasted almost four hours when the power went out because you got the five UPSs that are plugged into that monster UPS, which has a, I mean, it's a huge battery that's in the bottom of that thing. You, I mean, just when I had to clean out the server room, um, because I had, so when that big monster UPS came in, uh, uh, UPS had dropped it and the box was destroyed. And, there wasn't anything done. Uh, there was no damage done except the faceplate had come off of the UPS. Um, so I was able to um, get everything working, but then once I verified that there was no damage to the UPS and the UPS actually worked, then I had to shut it down, remove the batteries so that I could actually move it upstairs here to the lab, then I had to take everything out of the lab, then angle that big old sucker in there, install the batteries, you know, then close it up. And then, I mean, it took everything I had to lift the front of that thing over and move it so that I could plug it in. Now, uh, so one other thing, I have two dedicated 30-amp circuits for this room up here. There's one that's right over here, 
that I had to have um, because actually you might be able to see it. Yes, yeah, I can see. Right yes. over there. Yes, I can see. Yeah, right, right by that UPS. When we moved here, I had a brother. I think it was a DL sixty one eighty laser printer. Well, they the people we bought this house from had a kid living up here. And so building codes said it had to have one of those uh was it uh, a GFI some type of power outlet so that it it you know would trip easily. That was a 10 amp circuit. That brother laser printer I had, when you turn it on, went to 10.05 amps and would trip the breaker every time. So in order to use the laser printer, I had to move it downstairs into the dining room that was not considered living space. So it didn't have one of those uh, GFI or whatever the, the, the term is for, for the outlet in order for me to use the laser printer. And then it was a, a, a wireless air print capable uh, laser printer. And so a friend of mine who is rated uh, an electrician and rated for high voltage came out and put me in two 30 amp circuits so that I could actually have my laser printer up here. Even though I don't need the 30 amp circuit there anymore, because this uh, the brother laser printer eventually died last fall uh, from the power stuff. It just, it fried the the thing, and it wouldn't even power back on. Um, and I did not know that laser printers were part of the supply chain issue. It's next to impossible to get a laser printer. My wife was at uh, uh, what we call Sam's Club here, uh, a Walmart branded. Uh, huge warehouse place and she came across that brother multifunction printer scanner fax all you know all that stuff only thing i got hooked up or configured in it is just the printing and it's a it's a laser it's high speed duplex wi-fi air print capable perfect replacement and so that's there, and I mean, that thing doesn't use hardly any power whatsoever. It's not like that big old original laser printer that that actually took up that entire table there and required that, you know, dedicated 30-amp circuit. Um, and so that is a recent addition along with, you know, all the rest of the stuff that had to be replaced because of the, the power issues. And so that with that 30 amp circuit in what I call the server room, you know, that's what that uh, monster, uh, 2200 volt amp UPS is plugged into. And then it has, I think, uh, like six. So there are six unprotected outlets and six protected outlets and the five, 1500 volt amp UPSs are plugged into, you know, five of those six protected outlets so that when power drops, the, they start using their battery power. And then when they get down to a point, the big UPS uses its big battery 
to keep them going. So when I lost the power, power was out for almost five hours. Those servers never shut down in there. Nothing in there ever powered off. And so I, I was amazed that all that stuff stayed up for so long because I, I couldn't get access to any computer in order to remote in to the, uh, you know, to the IPMI to shut everything down. I couldn't connect to anything because I had no internet. I had no networking. My main computer was dead. I couldn't connect to anything, but they stayed up. Knowledge have you gained while you have Oh, no. Oh, man. Uh, that is incalculable because that home lab has allowed me to have all the infrastructure I need to write the articles and scripts for my website. And that's how people know me is from my website. Now, I used to, when I started my website, I was writing how-to articles. Then in 2011, when I started creating PowerShell scripts, it took about two years, but then eventually the PowerShell scripts took over everything. And now people know me as the guy with all the scripts. And because of everything that's in that server room in there, you know, I've been able to write, <clears throat> you know, the building the lab, series, the um, learning the basics of Horizon 7.12. I've got most of the stuff written for learning the basics of Horizon 8. I just got to find the time to finish that article series. Um, you know, uh, I've written scripts for just about every product that Citrix has and Microsoft has, and all of that, you know, I have to build the stuff in my lab in order to make sure that I'm documenting everything properly. And so there's times when I've had to have, you know, 25 or more VMs running so that I could have everything necessary to properly test a documentation script, you know, like for uh, Zen app, Zen desktop, Citrix virtual apps and desktops, or, um, you know, the, for creating the entire horizon lab. Um, so just having the lab and building all this stuff over the years has allowed me to keep my technical skills up, you know, for the VMware products, the Microsoft products, the Citrix products, the parallels products. You know, I try not to be a one-trick pony. I try to work with all the different vendors, and I can do that with the money that all my wonderful advertisers, uh, if you don't mind me saying so, uh, Control Up and iGel, you know, and uh, Goliath, um, you know, and Parallels. Uh, Let's see some of the others. Oh, you know, there's been others over the years that have you know sponsored for like a year. But 100% of all the money from all the support they have given me over the years, 100% of that and 100% of the money that people have donated 
for the scripts has all gone into building the home lab here. And so without the advertiser support and without the support from the community for the scripts, so it's kind of like a, um, a catch 22 or a circle of life kind of thing. You know, I initially put my money into it to get the lab, the beginning lab up and going, then creating the website and starting to write articles. Then advertisers took notice of the traffic my site was getting, then they wanted to advertise and then they started paying me and I took all of their money and used it to build the lab so that I could write better articles and write about more products. And then with the scripting, being able to create scripts and then the money would come in from the scripts and the advertisers renew. And then I would get new advertisers and then all that money was poured back into the lab so that I could rinse, leather, repeat, build a better lab so that I could write better articles and have more stuff in the lab so that I could write more and script more. And then advertisers would renew and new advertisers would come in and people would donate money. All that money went right back into the lab. You know, I've never spent one penny of any money that any advertiser or any script donation or donor has given me on anything other than what's in that room and what's in this lab here. And so it's just a circle of life. You know, I put money into it and then people noticed and then they started paying me and then all that money went to the lab, better content, you know, better scripts, more resources, more money, more resources, better articles, better scripts, more resources. You know, it's just a circle. Amazing. But what is the most memorable home lab story you'd like to share? Oh, man. Well, just from like November and December. Just from, you know, all the power issues in the weather and everything. Um, if I had bought the Dell extended warranty on my original writing computer and the monitors, the stuff was one month out of warranty when all the stuff happened and things died. If I had paid that extra hundred dollars, I would not have had to have spent $8,000. Yeah. Because then the computer and the monitors and all that stuff. Plus, I learned don't overload a UPS. And then uh, another lesson I've learned is that you should do your own manual power outage testing. You know, don't have anything running, but uh, no, no software running no applications running, but then just pull the plug on your UPS and then just watch how much time does it actually say that you have before it starts shutting everything down. And then of course you're there, you can plug everything back in real quickly, you know, but then you can know whether or not you have 
enough UPSs. And when you have a big monster setup, because let's see, so there are one, two, three, four, five, six, and then five. So that's the, there are 11 uh, APC backups, uh, 1500s in this lab. But uh, so that's how many 1500 volt amp UPSs are in this room. That's not counting the ones that are downstairs protecting, you know, the the TV and stuff like that, plus that big 2200. So, you know, you got to understand. And so that weather stuff in November and December taught me that, you know, and so I actually do that on Saturdays now. You know, I, was all, I will come. I didn't do it this morning because I knew we had this and I didn't want anything going wrong. Um, but I'll just come in here and I'll just yank the plug. Uh, all right. It says I've got 45 minutes. I plug it in. It says, oh, you have 124 minutes. And I go, okay, I'll take the lower number. <laughs> but now I know I have not overloaded because now I've got things split. But now it says I've got 45 minutes. And I do have uh, the UPS that the computer is plugged into. I do have the cable that plugs into the UPS, you know, into a USB port so that, you know, it's monitoring power. So if I'm not here or power goes out during the night, you know, I've told the thing, uh, the software that, hey, you know, when we get down to uh, 20 minutes, you know, do a graceful shutdown. You know, tell Windows to shut itself down. I rarely ever leave anything running on the computer. I leave the computer up, but I rarely leave anything running overnight. Because most of the time I don't have to because everything is running in there. You know, if it, you know, there's no reason for me to leave Outlook up or Word up or anything. So I rarely leave. Uh, and usually what I do is I, so I work for a company in Spain. I've always been an early morning person. So I usually start work around three, three thirty in the morning, which some people see as ludicrous, but I'm just like, I'm already up. You know, that's when I used to do lab work and article writing and script writing and stuff like that. Well, now I work, you know, put my time in for this company in Spain, because if I start work at three thirty in the morning, and don't take any breaks. Well, my eight hours, my day is up around 11 a.m. You know, then I can go have lunch, run some errands and stuff, and then come back, and I've got the rest of the afternoon. But I try not to work past 4, and then at 4 o'clock, I'll exit out of everything, and then I go to an elevated command prompt, and I run my batch file that I back everything on this computer up, I've got a two terabyte SSD. Um, I've got a thumb drive. It also backs everything up to the NAS. The NAS backs everything up to an external USB drive. And then I also copy everything up to share file. I copy everything up to Dropbox. And I also use Carbonite to back up everything. So that gives me what? Seven backups of everything? You are more prepared than actually most of the companies are. Yeah, well, I'm just so paranoid about losing anything, you know, so I'm just extra careful because I want to be, if, 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 so the part of Tennessee we live in, 
you know, we do get tornadoes and tornadoes have come through. And, and even when I lived in Arkansas, you know, Arkansas, Tennessee, Alabama, Mississippi are infamous for having tornadoes come out, come through and literally wipe out an entire town. And so my philosophy is if a tornado were to take out this house, I could go someplace else and get another computer and download from ShareFile or Dropbox or Carbonite, you know, and within a day or two, have all my files back and be able to get back to working. So that's why I'm so paranoid. <laughs> I, just, I, I would rather have more backup copies than not enough. But have you tested your backups? Can you actually restore? Yes. yes. Yeah. When I lost this computer, <laughs> yeah. When I got the new computer, you know, I was able to just start. Uh, I just able to hook back up. Uh, well, hold on one second. Let's see. Where is that sucker? Uh, yeah. I don't know if I can get it back up here because I just had to. I was trying to find a file the other day. Uh, let's see here. Whoop, right there. There's the, uh, there's the backup from, uh, writing PC four, uh, because I was trying to find, I knew I had taken notes on the process of, uh, cause I had done it so many times for customers. Um, I knew I had a document somewhere that had all the steps to, to do, uh, how do you replace a domain controller? with the new domain controller, keeping the same name and the same IP address. I knew I already had all those steps. You know, I didn't want to have to go through and recreate them all. And I was able to find that document on that backup drive. And so, because it was not, it was in files, old files I have from an old employer. Uh, I don't keep their files on my system, it's, you know, so I don't have readily access, you know, to old company data, but I needed it. And so I was able to get that old drive that I keep on this uh, bookshelf over here and I uh, was able to find, uh, you know, that one file and uh, get it back. So, yes. So when I had to replace this computer, the other computer, the original computer, the computer was dead. It wouldn't even power on. And when the replacement came in, I took the old SSD drive out. It was dead. There was nothing to get off of it. And so that's why I'm glad I had all these backups because I was then able to just say, okay, power up the new computer to go through the Windows configuration, get all the Windows updates. No, I don't want Windows 11. You know, and then once everything was up, then all I had to do was connect the drive. And then I basically just said, Hey, take everything in this folder tree and put it here. And then come back a couple of hours later and it had transferred my 384 gig that's in my, my documents folder. So yes, the backups are good and they were just recently tested. But do you have more like scary or most funny home lab stories? Uh, computer game. So only thing I do in my lab is work. I write articles, I script, and I do stuff, you know, for my employer. And for my employer, 
I'm updating documentation or, you know, writing articles. I'm writing a, a getting started guide now for a new program. Uh, not, not software program, but uh, kind of like a, 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 not similar to, but kind of like a V experts type uh, program. And so I'm having to write a getting started guide uh, for that. Um, and so I, I write, I test, and I script. And I do a lot of testing. Uh, I keep joking with, uh, so in my new job as field CTO for Flexible IT, I report directly to the CEO, and I have direct access to the two main PMs. <laughs> and so when I'm going through the software or company uh, sales, I create so many things, whether it's an issue or a misspelled word or bad grammar, bad punctuation, or I really don't think this is the right way to do something, or I think we'd, it'd be better if we did it this, or have you ever thought about doing that? Uh, so I'm doing a lot of testing of software. So my lab has literally been 100% business. Um, so that all that rambling to say, I don't have anything funny because when you're working and you're, I've been working from home. So this COVID stuff has, has absolutely no impact on me. I've been working from home since 2007. I've never been, rarely been in an office unless my employer is having like a, uh, a company meeting or something or an annual meeting, and then I go to an office. But for 14, well, actually, yeah, is it 14 years now, 15 years now, since January, no, February 2007 is when I started working from home and never going into an office. So that's been 15 years now. But uh, what do you also think about when, you, when they see your home lab or her, you said you have a big home lab at home? Most people don't understand it. Uh, a lot of my friends, family, stuff like that, they have absolutely no idea what I do. They don't comprehend anything on my website. And they keep joking with me that I should stop posting on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn because they can't understand anything. I was like, well, you know, well, that makes two of us. Uh, so I guess that's about the only only funny thing I got. Um, the people like you who know what I do, who understand what I do and why I do it, you know, they're they're like, I don't want to say impressed because impressed is not the right word, but it's. I don't know the word to use. It's more of a understanding. Um, it's almost like we're brother in ours because most of my friends have labs like this, or they've got company labs that are like this. You know, I always joke. I probably have more computing power than some of the customers that I have done work for. And, and, and I actually back up and I actually test my backups. You know, so I know my backups are good, you know, unlike most 
uh, companies who think they back up, but then they never test the backup, so they don't really know if the backups are actually valid. And another for a fact, because just a couple of weeks ago, someone reached out to me saying that someone needed to um, restore something or, or get her domain controller back. And I said, well, okay, all they need to do is just do a system state restore and then tell their software that this is an authoritative restore and their software should automatically know what to do behind the scenes, you know, if it's actually Active Directory aware and stuff. Or like I know that Veeam is. You know, it's the only software product I'm, I'm really aware of that people have had to restore Active Directory, you know, from a, a system state backup. Well, come to find out, they had only been doing file backups of their domain controller. Their backup software had never been configured to enable, you know, the Active Directory mode. And so it had never in all these years had ever taken a system state backup of any domain controller. And it's just like, and how many years have you been doing this? <laughs> yeah, but it's it's always takes something bad before someone realizes that, hey, we, we should be testing these backups. So, and then that's another good thing. You know, you said knowledge gained from the lab. You know, yeah, one of the important pieces is making sure your lab is backed up and that you have actually tested those backups, that those backups contain the files because I'm just using RoboCopy and I learned um, the hard way uh, when I went to restore stuff uh, a year, year and a half ago that I also needed to back up the registry keys for Putty and Wim, Win SCP. And I also needed to back up the uh, configuration folder for Notepad++. You know, and so there's uh, some things like that you learn, you know, when you restore and you're just like, oh, crap. I got to reset up all this stuff on Putty again? Crap. <laughs> Where's all this stuff kept, you know? And, and then you, you know, make, make your uh, little things to back up all those registry keys for all those applications. And then you know that, uh, you know, once you've got them, when you need to restore, like when I got this computer, it's just a matter of just double clicking all those reg files, you know, for Putty and WinSCP and uh, the other things that I back up, you know, the registry information for. And poof, it was nice to be able to just open up Putty once I did that. And all my servers were there <laughs> because when you've got 10 hosts and switches, you know, that's a lot of stuff that you have to go in there and reconfigure. So yeah, it only took one time realizing that I hadn't backed up that stuff, you know, to realize that, oops, that needs to be in my backup. <laughs> so I've got, you know, I use RoboCopy. And then simple copies, you know, for things like the, the one uh, folder for Notepad++, you know, and then the reg exports for all the other things that are contained in the registry. And I know all that works now because when I got this new computer in from Dell and I was able to restore everything, 
and have everything back up and going and nothing was missing. I had no missing stuff. My WinSCP was configured. My putty was configured. My notepad plus plus had all of this configuration stuff, you know, back in. So, you know, there, there was nothing else I needed to do other than download and, you know, and install, you know, applications. So what is a home lab for you? Well, if I had to start all over again, a home lab for me now, um, well, so when I first, I, I would use an, uh, so I think I'm on my fourth Dell laptop, but I used to do everything off of a Dell laptop with VMware workstation. And I was just noticing the other day that I still have all my product keys for VMware workstation. I think starting with four all the way up to the latest, uh, like 16 or something. Uh, I think it's the latest version of 16, I think. Um, but I still have had in my outlook notes, I had every product key for VMware workstation four on because back then that's was my lab was my laptop and VMware workstation because I could run, you know, with minimal uh, specs, but you could run, you know, like three VMs. You could get, you know, put everything on one server, but you could get, you know, a a domain controller, you know, a file server, you know, and uh, RDS license server and a Citrix license server all on one VM and then have another VM, you know, so that you could test uh, doing stuff with. But uh, just a, a laptop with a, a decent processor and a good amount of RAM. Uh, matter of fact, I think on all my laptops, I've always maxed out the RAM. Uh, I think this Dell laptop I've got now uh, has, ooh, I'm thinking... 32 or 64 gig of RAM and uh, a two terabyte NVMe. And I believe it's either a 12 or 16 core processor in that laptop. The laptop cost me almost $4,000. And if I had to, I don't have, you know, I haven't used VMware Workstation in a couple of years now because I do everything on vSphere now. Now that I've got all the servers and the horsepower, you know, to run vSphere and run vCenter, because you got to have vCenter if you're going to run, you know, Horizon. Um, And I know people do nested VMs to run ESXi nested and stuff in VMware Workstation. I've never gone for that. mainly because of performance and stuff. And I just didn't like doing all that stuff because of all the caveats and you don't get full functionality, you know, and stuff like that. And you really don't learn how to properly configure networking and storage when you're doing things nested, you know, with nested virtualization. And I believe that's in the, the, first, uh, the first part of my building Webster's lab was that one of the reasons I did this was because, you know, there are good videos out there and there's good blogs out there uh, and training courses out there 
you know, for vSphere and vCenter and everything. But they do everything in VMware Workstation using nested ESXi. And so you don't really know how to go through and configure real NICs with real networking and real kernel ports and, you know, and real data stores and real storage configuration and all this stuff. And so, again, the knowledge gained from having the lab was being able to go through and do stuff like that because that makes it easier when you're doing work for customers that you can actually know when they have done something wrong or something is not misconfigured. You know, like when um, they have not configured the proper MTU on their 10 gig VDS switches and you're seeing that error popping up and you're going, um, I think here is one of the reasons you're having performance issue with your VDI. You know, your horizon desktops are not performing optimally because you don't have, well, we said, oh, yeah, but you didn't set this here. Let me show you. And the reason I know how to find it is because I did it in my lab. I missed that step one time. You know, now, oh, they, okay, you also have to configure it here. And so that's actually in the building, you know, the lab series when we do the 10 gig, you know, is making sure that, hey, you got to have that 9,000 MTU, you know, you know, here and here and here. <laughs> and if you're missing it in any one of them, well, you're going to get all kinds of packet mismatches and performance is not going to be right. I don't know that because I did it wrong in my lab. And now I can help customers when I see it. I can tell them what they have misconfigured. And then also knowing that, you know, for VMX Net3 NICs, that why the default is power management enabled is beyond me because I don't know anyone that wants any servers NIC shut down to save power. You know, and so that's one of the things you check for when you're doing health checks and stuff is, hey, did you remember to do this? And I'm glad that receive size scaling is finally enabled by default because that was also something I've learned is, you know, how receive side scaling works with TCP IP and the number of, you know, vCPU you've got. Because if you've got a server with four vCPU and you don't have receive side scaling enabled, TCP, TCP IP is only using one thread. If you enable receive side scaling and you've got four vCPU on the server, TCP IP is now using four threads. And now you've got better network traffic coming in and out. So things like that you learn and you carry over into, you know, especially as a consultant, of course, I'm not a consultant anymore, um, but when you would do projects for customers is knowing all these things that you've learned by having a lab and knowing that these things need to be checked and stuff. And having a home lab allows you to learn these things in your lab 
and not in production because it's bad to learn things in production. I would rather learn things in the lab, learn how to do things, learn how to configure things, learn best practices, and learn how to automate stuff in my lab. So when I go to a customer site, it's not the first time I've installed Horizon. It may now. I'm not going to tell the customers my first production installment of Horizon, but I can tell them that, hey, you know, I've installed Horizon over 10 times in my lab. I'm not going to tell them that because <laughs> I've worked through all the processes and stuff, you know, and they can tell just by you going through the stuff, you know, where to click and what to click, and you can answer their questions because you've done the stuff in your lab. And lab experience is nothing to laugh at and nothing to sneeze at. Lab experience makes you more valuable in the marketplace. It makes you more valuable as a consultant. It makes you more valuable when you're looking, you know, for a job. Because if someone ever asks, have you ever worked with this? Yes, I have. I've done it in my lab. But your lab is bigger than most of companies' data center. <laughs> it was, you know... From 1998 until I started getting the multiple servers, probably around 2014, 2015, somewhere in there. So that's what, 16 years, 98 to 2014, about in there, you know, it, it was not an overnight, this is not an overnight lab. You know, this lab started being built in 1998, you know, with that first computer that I built, you know, with a throwaway motherboard and a throwaway processor and a couple of meg of RAM and learning how to install and configure something. And so, you know, most people go, well, I can't afford a lab like that. I can't afford a lab like that either. But you start small. And your reputation grows. And if you share your knowledge on a website and then you start a website and you get a reputation, then you could possibly get advertisers and ad money and you take that ad money and then slowly over time, you know, you build up your lab. Because if you learn a lot of stuff in your lab, and you never share what you learn, you're being very selfish. Our EUC community is all about sharing, sharing and caring, caring, you know, about realizing there are new people coming in and helping those new people Start building their career and giving them knowledge and sharing your knowledge and helping answer questions. Because if you have run into a problem, more than likely someone else has run into the problem. And when you solve it, write about it and share about it. When I first started my website, no one knew who Carl Webster was. And, you know, a lot of people still don't know who Carl Webster is, but you know, quite a few people know who Carl Webster is. And, but 
regardless, you know, Brian Madden, Ron Oglesby, and people like that, they didn't just come out of the womb with all of this knowledge and stuff, you know, and the reason that Brian Madden and Ron Oglesby and others have the reputation and the careers that they have is because they cared enough to share either through, you know, the blogs or being on support forums and helping answer questions, uh, writing books. Not everyone writes books. Matter of fact, books are probably becoming obsolete nowadays when you could just write a blog and then when something changes, you just write another blog article. When something changes, it's kind of hard to go out there and reprint a book. Um, but, you know, just don't be afraid to share what you are learning about in your home lab. You know, play with stuff, learn with stuff, write about it. Here's if anyone reads it. If one person reads it and you help them, wasn't that worth it? You helped that one person. You know, I cannot, and I, I really hope this doesn't come across as narcissistic or uh, bragging, but I can't count the number of DMs on Twitter, Facebook messages, messages on LinkedIn, or the emails I've gotten from people thanking me because I helped them get their start in their career and I helped them move up the ladder. Someone has to be there to teach. You know, if you go back to, to, to being a teacher, someone has to teach, teach kids how to add and subtract and then how to multiply and divide. And then there are teachers who take those students and teach them algebra and trig and calculus. And then you get into college and then you get into all the theoretical stuff. But someone had to teach the basics. And so that's what I've dedicated my community service to is teaching the basics. That's why almost all my articles are titled learning the basics. There are lots of places to learn advanced stuff. And you can read lots of advanced articles on, you know, what hyper threading is and how to do vCPU to, you know, the pCPU and, you know, what NUMA is and all this stuff. But if you don't understand the basics of what a processor is and what a processor does, it doesn't mean anything. And so start somewhere. Just start. <laughs> Build something. Learn something. Share something. You know, grammar doesn't have to be perfect. Spelling doesn't have to be perfect. Knowledge doesn't have to be perfect. I don't know anyone that has perfect knowledge or perfect spelling or perfect punctuation or perfect grammar unless they're using some, you know, an editor or a product like Grammarly or Perfected to help them, you know, with that stuff. When I first started writing, man, my grammar was atrocious. I actually have a copy up there, uh, strunk in white. I had to learn 
and I, and I know English is not your first language, uh, but I had to learn the difference between it's and it's without an apostrophe before the S and there and there and, and so on. I had to learn all that stuff. It didn't come second nature to me. Now, oh, my word, I drive people crazy when I find issues, you know, with their grammar or their spelling or their punctuation because I have learned so much now, you know, that now, you know, it's come in handy because with my employer, I'm taking their documentation and improving the English because I know English is not. You know, their first language is Catalan and then Spanish and then probably something else. English is probably their fourth or fifth language. You know, they did the best they could. Now I'm coming in and hoping to improve the English, the spelling, the grammar, the content, and stuff like that. 2008, I couldn't have done that. What one piece of advice would you give for beginner home labbers? Beginner home labbers, um, keep it simple. Start simple and just start, you know, you don't have to spend a lot of money. I didn't spend a lot of money when I first started, but just start, you know, and you don't even have to build something. Now, back when I started, it was very expensive to go out and just buy a fully built pre-configured computer. You know, but you, so we would actually go out and buy a case and buy a motherboard and a processor and RAM and a video card, you know, you built everything by hand and there's nothing wrong with that, but you don't have to start expensive. You can do everything on the, it, it may not have 64 core and you may not be able to afford, you know, 128 gig or 256 gig of RAM and, uh, you know, four terabyte NVMe. Pfft. Don't worry about that. Just start, start small, start simple, start easy. Because if you try, you can't eat an elephant all at one time. You know, uh, one of my uh, podcasts I listen to, Dave Ramsey, he always has an analogy. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. How do you build a home lab? One step at a time. It's uh, the same way with Dave Ramsey. It's baby steps. You just start small, but you start, and you're just taking baby steps and baby steps and baby steps, and then you start, you know, uh, what's the old cliche? I think it's, uh, they always say Confucius says a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step, a journey to this lab begins with a single computer, with a single processor, <laughs> you know, with a single hard drive, you know, with what you can afford with what you have, you just do with what you can do with what you can do doesn't have to be elaborate. Keep it simple. Keep it small. 
keep it easy. But the main thing is just to start to learn, not get frustrated. Good things are going to go wrong. I have fried my share of processors. I have bent my share of processor pins. And uh, but you learn and then you share. And when you share, you're helping others. And there's nothing better than helping others. And there's nothing better. I mean, there's oh well, you know, there's not many things better than getting a message from someone who says, thank you for helping me in my career. You never knew them. You never knew they were reading your stuff or learning anything from you, but they started climbing the ladder and they reach out and thank you. And, you know, it's just, wow. (laughs) Webster, thank you so much for joining and have a wonderful day. All right. Well, thank you. I, I've enjoyed this. I had no idea. Wow. We've almost got a full two hours. <laughs> You've been listening to the Home Labbers podcast. Our passion is to interview the leading IT experts and get tech enthusiasts all the information they need to become an expert. So if you run at home enterprise hardware and software and you like tinkering and self-learning, then you've found your new podcast. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, hit up the website at vondo.tech, on Twitter at hashtag vondotrending, and hashtag homelab. See you next time on the Home Labbers Podcast.